affirmative action. Just saying those words alone is enough to cause people to feel a way about it. Don't you think? And as we are re-releasing this episode with this new introduction, we're likely only a month or two away from it being removed from admissions decisions, which we all know is a slippery slope to race neutral, heavy emphasis on the air quotes there, since none of you can see me, policies in so many other spheres than just higher education. So to sum up what's been going on in the Supreme Court this year, and I love that I'm the one who's talking about the Supreme (laughs) Court, not the lawyer. My gift to you. (laughs) Thank you. It's just to make this accessible for the everyday person, just like me. So there were two cases that the Supreme Court is considering whether to uphold universities' ability to consider race in college admissions. These are the cases. Students for Fair Admission versus President and Fellows of Harvard and Students for Fair Admissions versus the University of North Carolina. So in both cases, the organization Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA, which is led by anti-affirmative action crusader Edward Bloom, is once again, after previous failed efforts, seeking the elimination of all race-conscious admissions practices. Twice already, the Supreme Court has rejected Blum's arguments and ruled that universities can consider race in admissions to promote diversity on campus and enrich students' learning experiences, But as we're continually forced to remember, this is a very different SCOTUS than that of the years past. So if you're listening and wondering, what's the big deal with race conscious admissions policies and asking yourself or others, why does this matter for higher education anyway? Let's sum up why in a nutshell. Policies like affirmative action help create a diverse student body promote integration on college campuses, and create an inclusive educational environment that benefits all, emphasis on all, students. Students from diverse backgrounds who learn from each other and are exposed to a variety of experiences, backgrounds, interests, and talents are better prepared, no shocker here, to be successful in our society. So Sarah, I wanted to ask you this since we're talking about you know, race conscious policies in higher education. What do you remember about your undergrad years in terms of this concept of diversity? I love that you're asking this question because within it, I think it's important to note that I think only 30 to 40% of Americans attend college. And we all tend to, when we're growing up, live, unless we're in a less common situation, live in bubbles, right? We tend to live in much smaller communities as we're being raised. And so this opportunity for folks to attend college is kind of like this opportunity to get out of your bubble and see people and meet people who are different than you. So being a Harvard undergrad, especially, I feel like this case is like really hit close to home. You know, I grew up in a firmly middle-class community or middle-class family within like a really wealthy community. And that really sort of expanded when I made friends who had both full-ride scholarships to Harvard but also who were given golf courses as graduation presents. I love that. (laughs) Like for real. And my mind was blown. I was like, how, like there's such different lived experiences when it comes to socioeconomic class. On top of that, Misasha, I mean, you know, we've talked about this all the time, growing up biracial in an era when marriage laws didn't allow interracial marriage until shortly before our parents got married. So we were sort of these pioneers of biracial humanity in the United States. And so growing up, I didn't have many other mixed race people aside from my own brothers. And so going to college and meeting rooms full of biracial people, including you, my dear best friend, where I didn't have to explain the bicultural experience because people just knew what that was like, that felt like home. That was huge for me. And then on the like different than me perspective, I joined a gospel choir, which was meant to like celebrate and uplift the black experience. Somehow they welcomed me. And they appreciated, like, I really appreciated the deep conversations we we had about race and belonging and what the purpose of this community was at Harvard. Beyond all of this, I think people were absolutely freaking brilliant. And they got me thinking in ways that I'd never thought of before, whether it's starting companies, whether it's being travel writers at Let's Go, traveling to like jazz and blues festivals where I was like, wait, there are music festivals? Like, I didn't know that. People spoke so many languages. The first transgender person I ever met that I knew that I had met at least at that stage because he was really open about his experiences. It was all just incredible. And so knowing what we know now, knowing what I know now about how access to education and basics like food, clean water, tutoring, SAT prep, security, these adverse childhood experiences, right? We don't all have equal experiences leading up to the potential for a college experience. So for all of these reasons, I'd say keeping access to educational environments like this as open and accessible to everyone as possible is important. So how about you? 
Well, before I talk about my experience, which I 100% sort of align with how you feel about this, I was reading an article maybe yesterday about how parents are now paying $750,000 to get their children into Ivy League schools now. And so (laughs) I didn't put this in the notes because I wanted to see your full reaction. Like, what? That's like more than some people say for retirement ever. Like, yes. What? And they quoted this one woman who happens to be Asian, whose son applied to 22 colleges, 22. I guess if you're paying three quarters of a million dollars, you want to make sure that you're applying to as many as possible. But, you know, if this is where we are now, then what is the point of college, right? Like, what is that? Like, it has become a status symbol, right? And that was what the article was saying. Like, oh, I drive a Maserati and my kid goes to Princeton, right? Like, that can't be the purpose of college, right? That cannot be the purpose of higher education. Because when I think back to my time at Harvard, right, I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, in a predominantly white and Asian community. And without like a lot of even religious diversity there. And, you know, going to Harvard and being in a room full of people that were all different religions than mine and didn't really grow up with one. So it was eye-opening, right? I met people from the center of the country, right? From other countries that I have not gone to to this day, right? But it was people from all different class levels, right? And socioeconomic levels. And that was so formative for me, right? And you think about how old you are when you go to college, right? From 18 to 22. Had I not experienced that, like if everyone looked like me from areas of the country like mine from the same socioeconomic level, where would the learning be in that, right? Like, what are we doing here? I think, you know, in fact, right, banning any consideration of race would hamper the growth of generations of students who would be unprepared for an increasingly diverse nation. Because Sarah, you were talking about, you know, we're the original sort of biracial, multiracial people, but that is increasingly the way that the U.S. is moving, right? And I think as the ACLU points out, a decision blocking universities' abilities to consider race will almost certainly mean a significant drop in the number of students of color being admitted to selective universities. Because as I just talked about, apparently three quarters of a million dollars can buy you prep, not even buy your way in, right? But it can buy you the chance to get in. Who can afford that, right? I think there's a tiny fraction of our country who can even consider doing that. And if that's what the universities are going to be full of, then we have a gigantic problem. And, you know, it's not just the ACLU saying that. And lower courts in both of the cases that you were talking about, Sarah, found that after closely studying several race-neutral alternatives, like a class-based affirmative action or plan similar to Texas's top 10% plan, which guarantees Texas students who graduate in the top 10% of their high school class automatic admission to all state-funded Texas universities, they found out that that wasn't enough, right? That didn't get us there. Less diverse campuses will harm students of color and white students alike. That's a really important point too. And take us backwards in our efforts to overcome like what is America's shameful legacy of racism and racial inequality. So we know it's not class, it's not grades. We've got to be conscious of race if we want to make higher learning and therefore our societies as a whole as diverse as we claim we do. And when I say we, right, I'm specifically talking to, you know, the people who are listening to our podcast, right? All these white liberal or progressives or people who call themselves that out there, right? Who say we want diversity, but are you willing to fight for it? A hundred percent. Because going back to something we started off this intro with, a decision outlawing consideration of race in college admissions could also, when you're talking about the implications, make it harder for employers to take steps to promote equity and diversity in their workforce. Dozens of government programs that address past and current discrimination, that advance racial equity, and really seek to close the racial wealth gap like business incubator programs, they could also be jeopardized. These cases are not just about education. It is about so many more spheres of our everyday life. Mm, I love that you said that. And I think we also now need to address the elephant in the room. Is it an Asian elephant? (laughs) It is actually, which is why are there Asian Americans who are vocally opposed to affirmative action? 
And I personally love, I know you do too, that we're talking about this as biracial Asian women because we need to all be talking about this in our community. And I remember being on LinkedIn and reading one comment from an Asian American man that said, I'm for diversity, but against affirmative action. Sorry. While two things can be true at once, and we like to say that a lot on this podcast because that is true, those two things cannot. They just can't. And those 69% of Asian Americans support affirmative action, factors like pressurized school systems in Asia, the immigrant condition, and a lack of firsthand knowledge of the U.S.'s racial history really fuel this opposition that we're talking about, which is what experts said back in last December. You know, the cases before the Supreme Court, as you were talking about, Sarah, one of them, you know, brought by, well, both of them brought by SFFA, accused the schools of discriminating against Asian Americans, right, which is the Harvard case, putting them at a disadvantage. Well, that's what the suit is claiming and valuing Black and Latino students more highly. Yeah. I mean, among Chinese Americans, support affirmative action is at 59%. Right. That's the lowest within the Asian American community. And in some parts of the country, members of the group made an impact on some school districts. It's already happening in San Francisco. For example, many Chinese Americans organized and successfully helped recall three members of the city's board of education earlier this year. Um, The boards had voted to institute a lottery system rather than a primarily test and grade based admissions policy at Lowell High School, which is the city's top public school. And that was a major reason for this organizing. Basically, experts said that while Chinese American affirmative action opponents come from diverse backgrounds, the most outspoken critics and organizers are middle and upper middle class, usually parents who came to the U.S. within the past few decades. Right? Many arrived around the 1990s or afterwards when immigration policies shifted towards these skill-based or higher educated recruits, those who were significantly professional class privileged. So that means that these folks who've never had to go through the American college system and therefore have never personally benefited from policies like affirmative action, instead having fairly simple and straightforward testing systems back home where they like control their own educational experiences are really fighting to bring down a system they're not as intimately familiar with. Yeah. And I mean, I compared right to this simple testing system, right, which is not unique to just China, but I understand that U.S. admissions can feel opaque, right? It's pretty hard to understand all of these different factors that go in, which makes many parents vulnerable to this logic. And I will say it's parents, but it's also our generation, right? Who sort of are parents of now young children who may, you know, in five to 10 to 15 years go to college, makes them vulnerable to this logic that assumes that there has to be discrimination at play. And I think these narratives thrive on social media platforms and messaging platforms like WeChat and other ones that are used by Chinese immigrants to socialize and organize. And when you think about this fear, right, that discrimination exists coupled with anxiety over class mobility and the impact and the experience of immigration, Many Chinese American opponents, according to the same study in December of 2022, see the admissions process as another example of how they're being overlooked in this country, right? Sort of written out of the narrative. And opposition to affirmative action also has to do, and I think this is a really important point, with how people interpret race, right? And the role of race in this country. Chinese American opponents are aware of the racism that the community faces, But at the same time, there's a limited understanding of how racism impacts each marginalized group differently, right? And many also tend to see racism as individualized acts. So disparities in educational attainment really don't factor in as an institutional problem. And, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, the individual versus the systemic. And this group may not see racism and therefore the need for race conscious admissions policies as a systemic problem when it is just that. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So I think what happens is also instead of focusing on affirmative action, there are other parts of the admissions process that opponents should be questioning, right? Things like legacy admissions and sports preferences. According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, 43% of white students admitted to Harvard fell under the category of recruited athletes, legacy students, and children of faculty and staff, which is a category known as ALDC. This percentage includes the dean's interest lists, who are applicants whose parents or relatives made donations to the university, 
And roughly 75% of white students admitted from these categories identified as ALDCs and would have been rejected if they had been treated as white non-ALDCs. And that's from the research. So basically, this case is myth versus facts. Asian Americans do face discrimination in our society, in our education systems, but they're not the results of race-conscious policies like affirmative action. A researcher said it's hard for folks to hold these two pieces in their minds at the same time. I love that you said that. And here is what happens if we don't hold those two pieces at the same time. We all lose. We have to fight hard. And if we what we fear happens during this SCOTUS term, we're going to have to fight even harder for all of us, not based on our own individual experiences or our own biases, because we have to decenter ourselves in this process and look for those who are the most underrepresented and who have historically always been so. Those are the voices that we have to take care of first. Again, it's all of us or it's none of us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right, so let's start with a question for the historians out there. Where did the phrase affirmative action even come from? Okay, so as Louis Menard recounts in a great New Yorker article, its arrival during the Kennedy administration in the 1960s was really haphazard. It turns out that this phrase was suggested by a black lawyer named Hobart Taylor Jr., who met the then new vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, in Texas at one of those inaugural balls, right? And Taylor was ultimately asked to do a rewrite of the executive order 10925, which was meant to set up the President's Committee on Equal Employment. So in this rewrite, Taylor inserted the words affirmative action in there. And he said he liked the phrase because of the alliteration, which I think is so awesome. But why did he need such a phrase? And as Menard says, Taylor needed a flexible phrase because Kennedy's committee was a bureaucratic entity with some vague mandate meant to signal that Kennedy and his administration were committed to fairness in employment. So this committee was supposed to award federal contracts, and its mandate was to see that companies that the federal government did business with did not discriminate on the basis of race. However, like all good committees, the committee had no real enforcement mechanism, though, so affirmative action was intended to communicate to firms that needed to integrate their workforce something like, don't just stand there, do something. So I get it, right? It was about this intention to make sure that the federal government didn't discriminate. But what you're saying is what they were supposed to do, aside from not discriminating, was totally unspecified. And so now we've spent the last 50 years as a nation trying to figure out what do something really means and in what forms. And now some white people, including a fair number of white progressives, I want you to hear that. It's the white progressives have been asking lately, do we still really need affirmative action? But here's the thing. People are asking this often without understanding that white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action and that we have a major case coming up in the Supreme Court in 2022-23 that may take it all away. So here's what you need to know. All right. So let's first talk about women. So as Time Magazine notes, originally, women weren't even included in legislation attempting to level the playing field in education and employment. So remember that first affirmative action measure that we talked about? That was an executive order, right, signed by President Kennedy in 1961, requiring that federal contractors, quote, take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. This was all about undoing the harms of slavery, Jim Crow, discrimination, harassment, all the things that were race related and taking action affirmatively to ensure it's not an unconscious, whoops, you know, I forgot I wasn't supposed to be discriminating type of thing. Now, to put this in context, remember that white women had only slowly, slowly, slowly started to see the effects of the first wave of feminism that had kicked off back in the mid 1800s. Right. So even by the 1960s, which is the period we're talking about that when Kennedy signed this, women had only been allowed to keep their wages and own property in their name for 60 years. White women had only been allowed to vote for 40 years. The second wave of feminism picked up in the 1960s, and it was in 1963 that the Equal Pay Act passed Congress, ostensibly 
promising that people were getting paid the same for the same work. And I'm trying to control my face. Like, are you laughing yet? How are we doing here in 2022 with that? Especially when you consider that there is still no one equal payday for even all women. Right. And so at that time, still no contraception, even for married couples, was allowed yet until 1965. There was no such thing as no fault divorce until later that decade. So basically what I'm trying to put this in the context of is there were still a lot of hurdles to go from women, white women being considered property to seeking and achieving fairness and opportunity. All right. So. Going back to moves from the government, Title Seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed, right, prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of now sex, as well as race, religion and national origin. And it should be noted that the category sex was included as a last dish effort to kill the bill. And it was only really included in the list of prohibitive forms of discrimination because conservative opponents of the legislation hoped that including sex would sway those moderate members of Congress to withdraw their support for the bill. Like, I mean, are we including sex and are we allowing women to be equal? But still, it passed. Bummer for those guys, nevertheless. You know, and for the feminists in the House, it's so great that it did, because according to a 1995 study, there were at least six million women, the overwhelming majority of them white, who simply wouldn't have had the jobs that they had those 20 years later since, you know, all of that equality had really been pushed forward, but for the inroads made by affirmative action. And one small indicator of this was U.S. businesses owned by women, again, the vast majority of them white, which went from 5% of all businesses in the United States in the early 1970s to more than 37% in 1997. You know, we'll talk about Title IX in just a moment, which a lot of people also associate with gender equity. But thanks to Title VII, women are now more likely to graduate with bachelor's degrees and attend graduate school than men are and outnumber men on many college campuses, too. In 1970, just 7.6% of physicians in America were women. In 2002, that number had risen to 25.2%. And that was still talking about numbers that happened 20 years ago. Right. So we'd expect that that would be better now. And with these numbers, you'd think, right? Like we just talked about incredible leaps in working towards equality for women. You'd think that white women in particular would be huge supporters of affirmative action as they were the ones to see the most measurable change, right? But no, because we flipped it and society has forced this lens where now people are thinking that it's a zero sum game. And you know, Tim Wise wrote, did a great study about this. And according to him, we saw political manipulation of the affirmative action issue by far right figures in the early 1990s. So remember, this is right around all those statistics that we just talked about, all those measurable gains for women, largely white women. And instead of focusing on the benefits for women, it was clear that these attacks would be exclusively race-based. So in Louisiana, where white supremacist David Duke, remember him, received between 50 and 60% of the white vote in his bids to become a U.S. senator and the state's governor, still shocking, with no major differences in that vote count, really, between white men and white women, affirmative action was, Sarah, to your point, presented as a racial zero-sum game with white people sort of the, you know, aggrieved victims of this. In North Carolina, where Jesse Helms found himself trailing in polls to challenger Harvey Gant, who was the African-American former mayor of Charlotte, in Jesse Helms's bid for re-election to the U.S. Senate in 1990, he began airing a television commercial emphasizing the harm to whites people from having to hire a minority because of a quota. Did your eyes roll back in your right. head? Matt, well, I've seen some really ridiculous political commercials in Louisiana in 20, you know, 16. So anyway, but yes, totally. This was, you know, interesting to read coming from California, right? After successfully pressuring the University of California Board of Regents to abolish affirmative action in 1995, which I remember, Pete Wilson, who was the governor at the time of the state, announced that the vote, quote, was the beginning of the end of racial preferences. Neglecting to mention, however, that gender-based affirmative action at the schools had also been eliminated and would remain in the crosshairs of Proposition 209, which was a huge proposition which did very bad things in the state a year later. And even more troubling to us, 
there has been a steady shift in the presentation of affirmative actions victims. Then that's like heavy air quotes here. While most, if not all of the early public victims were angry white men, Baki, for example, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Increasingly, conservative legal advocates have latched onto cases with white women in the forefront. As researcher Jesse McDaniels notes, since that landmark, and we're coming back to that case right now, 1978 Supreme Court case, Regents of the University of California versus Baki, in which the court ruled that race may be factored into university admissions, quote, the people suing universities for discrimination in the academic admissions process have been white women. Abigail Fisher, which was the Texas case, Barbara Gruder, Gruder versus Bollinger, Jennifer Gratz, Gratz versus Bollinger, those were the Michigan cases, and Cheryl Hopwood, Hopwood versus Texas. Those landmark cases challenged university affirmative action programs in Michigan and Texas, respectively, by shifting the public's attention from angry white men to, you know, hurt and discriminated against white women. The opponents of affirmative action were, you know, no doubt hoping to cast this debate in stark racial terms and completely ignored the degree to which white women have generally reaped benefits from these policies far beyond whatever individual, you know, harm may or may not have occurred in a specific instance. Well, and as I hear this, right, this idea of white women using their voices or suing, you know, to play victim and hurt people of color sounds an awful lot like stories that we've heard throughout our American history and even more nonsensical, considering how much they're actually hurting themselves by trying to take down the systems that have benefited them. You know, I think we forget how far we have come, how different life was for people just a few generations ahead of us. We, we take things for granted, like the 40 hour work week. We don't really understand what fights people had to like get involved in to give us what we have today. Yeah, that's such a great point, because I think especially when it comes to white women and affirmative action, What's so interesting is that white women's views on affirmative action aren't really different from white men's views, particularly when the issue is framed as one of preferences, as in, for example, preferential hiring and promotion. Since, you know, this preference framework is really what, you know, affirmative action proponents will be responding to, you know, for as long as we can continue to hopefully have affirmative action, it's really the white women's attitudes on this issue that is most concerning. Because according to national studies, since 1986, white women are not substantially different, again, when it comes to white men, when you're thinking about all of the implications of this issue. In fact, opposition to preferential hiring and promotion or opposition to admissions preferences in colleges has grown into the 70s to 90 percentile among white men and women over the years, which is huge, right? That is a huge number. All right. So, you know, when I say words like 1995 or 1986, I hear you. Uh, to some people, it's like, oh, you mean like last week, but... Then. Yeah, or people who are like, I wasn't born yet. So I hear you <laughs> saying that this is data from a long time ago. But I mean, the real question is, have these attitudes changed? Data from the 2014 Cooperative Congressional Election Study, which is an annual large-scale academic survey that aims to tra track political attitudes, showed that 66% of young white people between the ages of 17 and 34 described themselves as, quote, somewhat opposed or, quote, strongly opposed to affirmative action policies in employment and admissions. Among young white women, 67% are against affirmative action. Among young women of color, the study polls Black, Hispanic, and Asian women, only 29% oppose it either strongly or somewhat. And side note, it was the existence of this poll and this data in the first place that got us to really start our podcast on this concept. Thank you, polls. Sad about the data. But if you look around at your friend groups, right, if you're listening and you hear young people between the ages of 17 and 34, if you look around at your friend groups, do you know where they stand on affirmative action? Like, do you know where you stand on affirmative action? Because these percentages are really high. And I think this is really something that sort of sticks out to us as frustrating because the success of affirmative action in employment and university admissions has not at all eliminated some of the fundamental disparities in education and income gaps between white people and black people in this country. Although the poverty rate for Black people and Hispanics have dropped, you know, some since 1970, it's still more than double the rate for white people in this country. And I think this, the whole concept or the whole naysayers 
behind affirmative action forgets this fundamental fact that Americans of color are starting typically from much farther behind. You know, millions of Americans of color never get on board a train that most white people in this country were actually born on. Ooh, zinger. But why do so many white women in particular forget about all this? Because after all, there was affirmative action that benefited white people first and foremost. I think that's really important to remember, right? Do you remember the GI Bill? Because we've talked about this in a few episodes already. So I want to do a refresher because it's really important to talk about again. As History.com discusses, when lawmakers began drafting the GI Bill in 1944, some Southern Democrats feared that returning Black veterans would use public sympathy for veterans to advocate against Jim Crow laws. So to make sure that the GI Bill largely benefited white people, the Southern Democrats drew on tactics they had previously used to ensure that the New Deal helped as few Black people as possible. So during the drafting of the law, the chair of the House Veterans Committee, Mississippi Congressman John Rankin, played hardball and insisted that the program be administered by individual states instead of the federal government. Ugh, states. States' rights. And he got his (laughs) way. Now, Rankin was known, like, very clearly known as a racist. He defended segregation. He opposed interracial marriage. And he had even proposed legislation to confine and then deport every person with Japanese heritage during World War II. And a little plug, if you haven't listened to our episode uh, interviewing John Tateishi, who was incarcerated in those World War II internment camps in our country, incarceration camps, uh, you should listen to that episode. But Roosevelt, President Roosevelt signed this Servicemen's Readjustment Act into law back in June 1944, only weeks after the D-Day offensive began. And it brought into law sweeping benefits for veterans, including college tuition, low-cost home loans, and unemployment insurance. But from the start, Black veterans had trouble actually securing the GI Bill's benefits because some of them couldn't access benefits because they had not been given an honorable discharge, for example. And a much larger number of Black veterans were discharged dishonorably than their white counterparts. Veterans who did qualify could not find facilities that delivered on the bill's promise because going back to states' rights, right? Black veterans, for example, in a vocational training program at a segregated high school in Indianapolis were unable to participate in activities relating to plumbing, electricity, and printing because adequate equipment was only made available to white students, right? In other cases, simple intimidation kept people from enjoying the GI Bill benefits because another example of this, in 1947, a crowd hurled rocks at Black veterans as they moved into a Chicago housing development. Thousands of Black veterans were attacked in the years following World War II, and some were singled out and lynched, right? So even though Rankin, the guy we talked about before who made it all about the state's rights, had lost the battle to exclude Black men from VA unemployment insurance, that too was doled out inequitably. Men who applied for unemployment benefits were kicked out of the program if any other work was available to them, even work that provided less than subsistence wages, right? Not a livable wage. Southern postmasters were even accused of refusing to deliver the forms Black veterans needed to fill out in order to get their unemployment benefits. Like, I'm hearing this and I'm like, holy smokes, the deck is stacked against Black people. This GI Bill was definitely like an affirmative action bill supporting white people. So Black veterans and civil rights groups protested their treatment, calling for protections like Black involvement in the VA and non-discriminatory loans. But the racial disparities in the implementation of the GI Bill had already been set into motion. And as the years went on, white veterans flowed into the newly created suburbs where they began amassing wealth in skilled positions, right? And then they passed on that generational wealth. Black veterans were not given that. They lacked the options. And the majority of skilled jobs were given to white workers. Going back to those, when we talked about the loans and the move into the suburbs, even though the GI Bill guaranteed low interest mortgages and other loans, these loans were not administered by the VA. The VA could co-sign, but they couldn't guarantee the loans. And it gave white-run financial institutions free reign to refuse mortgages and loans to Black people. Again, let's not, we talk about redlining a lot on the show, but let's not forget redlining and racist covenants, which often denied entry to Black people into whole neighborhoods. In 1947, only two of the more than 3,200 VA guaranteed home loans in 13 Mississippi cities went to Black borrowers. Two. Only two. Right? That's ridiculous. These impediments 
a historian notes, were not confined to the South. In New York and the northern New Jersey suburbs, fewer than 100 of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill supported home purchases by non-white people. And in those racist covenants, you could look up sundown towns, look up racial covenants. I looked in my hometown and in the neighbors. I was shocked, shocked, but not shocked that I saw the wording in certain towns that I know that said no people of color were allowed to purchase. We have them here in the Bay Area. Right? Yeah. Like this stuff is here, has been here and has impacted people today. So I know that was a lot about the GI Bill, but I think it's also important to talk about education. Because Black veterans in search of education that, that they had been guaranteed fared no better. A lot of Black men returning home from the war didn't even try to take advantage of the bill's education benefits because they couldn't afford to spend time in school instead of working. But those who did were still at a considerable disadvantage compared to their white counterparts. Because let's go back to segregation, right? Public education provided poor preparation for Black students. Many lacked much educational attainment at all because of poverty and social pressures. And as veteran applications flooded the universities, Black students found themselves left out. Northern universities dragged their feet when it came to admitting Black students, and Southern colleges barred Black students entirely, right? The VA itself encouraged Black veterans to apply for vocational training instead of university admission and sort of arbitrarily denied education benefits to some students. The students who tried to attend college found doors closed at every turn. A full 95% of Black veterans were shunted off to Black colleges, which were institutions that were underfunded and overwhelmed by the influx of new students. Most of them were unaccredited, and with a massive influx in applicants, they still had to turn away tens of thousands of veterans. So the original GI Bill ended in July 1956. By that time, nearly 8 million World War II veterans had received education or training, and 4.3 million home loans worth $33 billion had been handed out. But most Black veterans had been left behind. As employment, college attendance, and wealth surged for white people, disparities with their Black counterparts not only continued, but widened. The historian that I quoted before also writes, no greater instrument for widening an already huge racial gap in post-war America than the GI Bill. So that's affirmative action for white people. Well, and I think that's such an important history lesson when you think about systemic racism, right? Because you look at all of those systems that were really designed to benefit white people who, you know, fought in World War II and how all of those systems also exactly worked against Black veterans, right? So, I mean, you just named all of the systems, right, that you basically need in society to survive and then thrive. And like, you can see that disparity just going in opposite directions, right? That is widening. And we see that today, too, in different ways. And so I think that that is so important to remember what help white people received from the government to get to the place where they can now be like, I don't know about this help thing. Like, we're good. So... Another great example of affirmative action is Title IX, which is actually celebrating 50 years since its inception this April. The 37 words of the Title IX legislation are some of the most fundamental in the history of women's sports. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Those words are really powerful, yet those words often only pertain to white women. Why? Well, as Ms. Magazine notes in 2020, a staggering 42% of schools are either composed of 90% white students or 90% students of color. And this is pointed out by the Equity Project and the Women's Sports Foundation. Now, Latina Robinson compared this extreme separation to modern day segregation. And because populations are not evenly distributed, neither are opportunities. And just like sit with that for a second, because we wrote about this in the book, too. Schools are more segregated now than they actually were in the immediate post-integration, like post-segregation era, right? Yeah. Well, and back to what you were saying, you know, about the GI Bill and having states sort of administer that. Nina Chowdhury, who's general counsel and senior advisor for the education at the National Women's Law Center, notes that states, not surprisingly, do not allocate funding in equitable ways when it comes to Title IX, right? Which means time and time again, we see districts with a greater population of students of color receiving less funding. 
In other words, even though Title IX provided and still provides massive reform for women in sports, the primary beneficiaries are white suburban women. And, you know, Senior Director of Advocacy for the Women's Sports Foundation, Sarah Axelson, really talked about the urgency behind needing to change this, right? Because this is on all of us, as she says, this is a systemic issue. Let's take the WNBA, right? The Women's National Basketball Association. It's made up of 80% Black players, yet only four coaches out of 12 are women, and zero of those four coaches are women of color. So as Candace Parker notes, who's a WNBA champion and a two-time MVP, Black women are the majority of the minority in the WNBA, but their leadership is not reflective of that fact. And representation, not surprisingly, is key in uplifting women of color in sports. And as Candace Parker notes, there needs to be more action on this front. There needs to be a conscious effort to put women on the forefront. And by women, she means women of color. Additionally, if you think about the divisions, right, and divisions athletes like D1, Division I athletes are those elite athletes at those big sports powerhouse schools. 56% of all Division I female student athletes are white compared to 21% black. And due to systemic injustice, as we've just discussed, white Division I athletes have far greater opportunities than their black teammates. According to Dr. Ketra Armstrong, who is a professor of sports management and the director of the Center for Race and Ethnicity and Sport at the University of Michigan, over the past 20 years, there has been considerable pushback against Title IX, not only from institutions, but also from elected officials. And, you know, as that's happened, gender equity has really impacted Black female student athletes differently than their white counterparts. As Dr. Armstrong notes, many of the sports that colleges and universities added to be in Title IX compliance, such as field hockey, rowing, softball, swimming, and lacrosse, were not typically sports in which Black women and girls participate. I mean, over time, that's changed as people have realized that Black women can excel in more than just basketball or track and field, but there's still disparity. So as Dr. Armstrong notes, Black girls and women have benefited from Title IX, just not to the same extent as white women. Because remember those sports that I just listed that, you know, field hockey, rowing, softball, those sports can be expensive sports. And remember what we just talked about with regard to the GI Bill, you're not coming into the same scenario where you've got the same amount of money to spend on things that are kind of considered extra for a lot of kids growing up. So when you talk about leaders, though, says Dr. Armstrong, I think we're getting there. You know, she added, we're still seeing more black women as head coaches and in the administrative ranks, but we still see more white women who are at those top, top levels, right? Breaking the glass ceilings. It's starting to change because our athletes have become empowered and we're at a different place in our country. But clearly, we have way more to go. So since we're on Title IX, let's talk about how affirmative action shows up there. Because this is where it gets really important, because I think these are the highest profile affirmative action cases that are out there. Yes. And these are the ones that are coming up for discussion this year. Right. Right. And so it's important to understand sort of the history of this a little bit. I'll make it brief. It'll be, I'm not going to say fun, but. No, I think it's actually really, really important because I don't get this part. That's why I was looking at you sideways. Okay, cool. Well, let's just dive in then. So I'm going to ask you all the questions. Okay. Ask me all the questions. All right. So the Supreme Court case that admissions offices rely on today is that case that I talked about Real briefly at the start, that 1978 case, the Regents of University of California versus Bakke. So despite several attempts to relitigate that, that still really is the law of the land. But it's also a really good example of all of the judicial and sort of legal scholar confusion around affirmative action, because the court in that case managed to produce six separate opinions. Okay, see, first question right here. All right, ready? <laughs> you all let me know how I'm doing with these questions to break it down for us normal mortals. What did you just say in human speak? Okay, because I get from your emphasis, I take it that it's highly unusual to have six opinions produced by the nine Supreme Court justices? Yeah, great question. Because you typically have a majority opinion, then you have a minority opinion, or sometimes justices write their own dissent. That's typically how it goes, two, you know, three... This one, there were six, right? So you have a plurality opinion, which means the most justices sort of signed on to this one opinion. And this is by Justice Powell, struck down this admissions program at the University of California at Davis School of Medicine, from which Alan Bakke, who's a white man, had been twice rejected. 
but it upheld the right or it upheld the right of schools to use race conscious admissions programs. And the problem at this Davis Medical School was that the medical school basically ran two admissions processes, one for everyone and one that effectively only considered minority applicants for which 16 you know, places were set aside. So what they're saying is that that is problematic, right? Like, so you can't have the two track, a numerically based, we're going to hold 16 spots for people of color, and then we fill in the rest. That's what they were saying. That process is flawed. Right. Well, so Baki was able to show that his record was superior to the records of some of the students who had been admitted through the second special program. And that also showed that this program wasn't narrowly tailored. And we'll get to that in a little bit, you know. One consideration that the university offered in the way of saying like, well, this is really important for the state is that it's belief that, you know, if we have more minority doctors, right, they would practice in underserved communities. So to sort of increase doctors in those communities. And in that opinion, Justice Powell found no evidentiary basis for this and, you know, said it was arguably a racist assumption, right, that you've got black doctors who are going to go back to black communities the school could have investigated if they're going to make that claim, whether this actually was the case, right? Like whether you had more minority doctors who went back to underserved communities or, you know, went into underserved communities, but they didn't, right? So Powell suggested in his opinion that, hey, if you did that, that might be better than just saying, you know, we should let people in by race. Like we should let people in if they're going to help communities that typically don't get doctors, Mm. right? Okay. That makes sense. Yep. And so another consideration that the school offered was the aim of countering the effects of societal discrimination. You know, but Powell, in his that opinion, though, he allowed that specific race conscious remedies could be justified if you've got very specific instances of discrimination. He was like, eh, I don't think that you're when you're saying big words like countering the effects of societal discrimination, which is basically what they were saying is like, because there's systemic racism, we need to do this. He was like, yeah, to me, that doesn't make sense. He called it an amorphous concept of injury that may be ageless in its reach into the past. So like slavery was over a long time ago. So let's get over it. Yeah, like your theory is great, but it's not specific. So I don't know what you're talking about, really. Got it. Okay. Yeah, he probably didn't like ascribe to systemic racism, you know, as a driving factor. All right. But the important part of what Powell wrote is that he did think that the goal of a diversified medical school class was constitutionally permissible. So like was okay, according to the Constitution. And he also played a trump card that is really almost never mentioned in discussions of this case. So admissions programs determined by race are in violation of both the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and, you know, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which outlaws racial discriminations in institutions that receive federal funding. And those rights, like if you just took those two things alone, those rights were largely on Baki's side, right? You couldn't discriminate against white people simply because people of color had once been discriminated against. But Powell argued something different. He said that there was something else at play and he used the First Amendment, specifically the right of academic freedom. And as a huge asterisk, right? I was going to like ask, I'm like, what's that? But now you're going to answer my question without me. Yeah, there isn't a constitutional right to academic freedom. But he cited this 1957 case, Sweezy versus New Hampshire, in which Justice Frankfurter in like a concurring opinion, so not the key opinion, but in his like separate opinion that he wrote when he's like, I'm going to agree to your like majority opinion, but I've got some other points I'd like to discuss. So Frankfurter quoted South African jurists to the effect that a principle of academic freedom allows a university to determine who will teach its classes and who will sit in its classrooms. And so when you're quoting South African jurists on something, typically, you know, you're kind of really far reaching for this principle to, you know, and side note. Wait, so I don't, wait, no, you need to back that up. I don't get this. Okay. So typically in the U.S., you can only rely on precedent that U.S. courts have decided. He like literally was talking about a South African jurist in South Africa. Yes. But so the thing is, Frankfurter, he wrote a concurring opinion, right? He didn't write the majority opinion. So in a concurring opinion, he can say kind of whatever he wants, because it's not going to be relied on as the key, like the majority opinion, right? The people like what's published on CNN, is not going to be like, because of this, mm-hmm. this happened, right? It's like, he can say like, oh, and there's this principle that I also think is great. And you know, in South Africa, they say this. 
not controlling law, right? But it's out there as an opinion of a Supreme Court justice, concurring one. So Powell says, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like some law clerk of his found it and was like, yeah, let's throw this in. He's like, yeah, right to academic freedom, right? So once he did that, he concluded that because Davis, the University of California at Davis, could reasonably decide that a diverse class provides a better learning environment, considerations of an applicant's race as one factor, right, among others, can fall with the ex within the exercise of a constitutionally protected right. So he kind of like circumvented, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. But he was able to argue that and you got justices to sign on to that. And it wasn't that it was there wasn't a case out there that said that wasn't the case, right? So that's the thing. That's how like law comes into being. Because you don't have a case that's saying that's not the case. You can be like, oh, well, this could be the case. And here it is. It is the case. So under this court's ruling, it should be noted that Baki actually was admitted to Davis. And he became a doctor. Ironically or not, he went on to work at the Mayo Clinic where one of his patients was Justice Powell. That's really funny. Right? In a small world. So I want to go back to this question then, because what you just said was considerations of an applicant's race can be one of the factors, among others, that can be like taken into consideration. So how does an institution consider an applicant's race to, and I love the, when, like, the way it's phrased, like to take affirmative action to ensure that no discrimination is happening based on race, when it seems like, how do you take it into consideration, practically speaking, to pass the standards set by the case? Like, I don't, it feels vague, sort of like how take affirmative action is like, let's intend to do this, but we're not going to tell you how. This also feels like another one where you can trip yourself up really easily. And how do they hold people accountable to doing it in a way that's okay? Yeah, I like that question. And I'm glad you asked because this is a really important thing to talk about, which may not seem important until you actually are trying to read a Supreme Court case or understand what, you know, the Washington Post is trying to tell you about some ruling, right? There are different standards by which the Supreme Court considers different things. All right, so let's talk about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which governs a lot of this, right? The Equal Protection Clause, which is part of the 14th Amendment, basically mandates that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, right? So when you're challenging a constitutionality of a law, right, both state and federal courts, so you've got state courts, right, you've got federal courts, they look at different laws, will commonly apply one of three levels of judicial scrutiny, right? You've, there's three. Strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, or rational basis review. And so the level of scrutiny that's applied determines how a court's going to analyze the law and its effects, right? It also determines who has the burden of proof, right? To say, like, this is either this is constitutional or this is not. And although these tests aren't set in stone, they can be changed around, like, there is a basic framework for how they're applied. So let's talk about that for a second. Are you with me? I am, but I'm trying to figure out how do they decide which things fall under which level of scrutiny or are there just already buckets decided? Yeah, there are. Okay. So, okay. okay. So affirmative action, right, falls under strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of scrutiny applied by courts to government actions or laws. And the U.S. Supreme Court has determined that legislation or government actions that discriminate on the basis of race, national origin, religion, and alienage must pass this level of scrutiny to survive a challenge that the policy violates constitutional equal protection. So this is like the highest level of scrutiny, and it's also applied when a fundamental right is being threatened by law, like the right to marriage. So remember, like the court cases that have dealt with the right to marriage, it's this analysis that they're applying. Okay. Okay, so strict scrutiny requires the government... So the government has the burden of proof here to prove two things. One, there is a compelling state interest behind the challenge policy. So the state has to have some specific interest in making sure that this policy stays in place. Okay. And two, that this law or regulation is really narrowly tailored to achieve its result. And remember, like when Justice Powell was talking about, like, I don't know, these words are really vague and broad. He was saying it wasn't narrowly tailored. He was also saying that you've got two programs, like you didn't just put into one, like you've got these, there's a lot of stuff going on. It's not narrowly tailored. So basically in each instance, this, the Supreme Court or whatever court is answering this question is going to be looking at these two questions and deciding, right, on balance, if these two things are met. Okay. 
So it's not totally arbitrary, but the burden of proof is on the government, right? Okay. Okay. So just to complete this analysis, because that's the level, strict scrutiny for affirmative action, the next level of judicial focus on challenge laws is less demanding, right? You're sort of going from strictest to least strict, right? In order for a law to pass intermediate scrutiny, it must, two things, serve an important government objective. So it's not a compelling state interest anymore. It's an important government objective and be substantially related to achieving that objective. And this test was first adopted or accepted really by the Supreme Court in 1976 to be used whenever a law discriminates based on gender or sex. So would this be the level that, you know, the Florida rules that are going into effect with transgender students, like this would be the level of scrutiny that this would fall under? Yes, because it involves, it also applies to cases of sexual orientation, unless you're dealing with a fundamental right. But I don't think that this is right. this case. So again, though, intermediate scrutiny puts the burden of proof on the government. So those two levels of scrutiny require the government to prove their case, right? Those two things. Finally, there's another lower level of scrutiny, and that requires very little for a law to pass as constitutional. This is called the rational basis test. And the burden of proof shifts here. The person challenging the law, right, not the government or whomever, must prove either, so one or the other, that the government has no legitimate interest in the law or policy, or there is no reasonable rational link between that interest and the challenge law. So, you know, courts using this test are really deferential to the government and will often deem a law to have a rational basis as long as that law had any conceivable rational basis, even if the government never provided one. You know, and this really applies to all laws or regulations which are challenged as irrational or arbitrary, as well as discrimination based on age, disability, wealth, or felony status. Okay, shaking it all off. I got it. No, okay, that's interesting. I know. Well, so thank you for sitting through Con Law 101, Equal Protection Clause. But so I know it was a digression, right? And kind of, you know, intense at times. But these standards are really important to understand if you want to understand how the Supreme Court works when it's a question of equal protection. And I also think that it's for everyone who's watched Law and Order and like looks, I was telling you this before, right? And you're like, oh, is it, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt or is it preponderance of the evidence? Like, if you know that, you can understand this too. Like, these are just standards that the court will apply. Like, who has the burden of proof, right? This is, and what do you need to prove? Those are like, if you've ever sat on a jury too, you have jury instructions and you have to prove these certain things for something to happen, right? So under this framework, right, the strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, rational basis, Baki was a new standard case, and this was the first one that I studied in law school. And then over the last 20 years, we've seen several other cases along the same lines, right, which we talked about before. The Michigan case, Grutter versus Bollinger in 2003, was basically a relitigation of Baki. So it was Fisher versus Texas in 2013, along with the second round of that case known as Fisher II in 2016. And the Fisher cases involved a white woman who was turned down for admission to the University of Texas at Austin, which is University of Texas's flagship campus. Her lawyers argued that even if she was were rejected solely because of her grades and not her race, she could still claim a constitutional injury from being subjected to an unfair admissions process. So each time the court upheld the constitutionality of using race as a factor in admissions, but they were very close calls because the vote in Fisher two was four to three. And the current case, now we're all the way to present day, Harvard College admissions case that the Supreme Court will be hearing in its 2022 to 2023 season, which is called Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard, is the same case, really, one more time. The person behind both the Fisher one and two cases and the Harvard case is Edward Blum, who is a man for whatever reason has decided to devote his time to preventing a small number of black and brown teenagers from attending colleges that are desperate to have them. And Edward Blum is most accurately described as a conservative legal strategist who connects potential plaintiffs with attorneys who are willing to represent them in test cases, which he tries to use to set legal precedents. Got him. So like, this is how you find a class action plaintiff at times, right? You need the person who's been injured or has a claimed injury to represent your whole test case so you can just file a class. So so Harvard wanted the trial level because the judge ruled that its admissions program is consistent with other Supreme Court decisions like Bakke. And that's not surprising since that Bakke decision cited Harvard's admissions program as a model. But 
Let's remember who's on our Supreme Court right now. It's all too likely that it will decide that the country is done with this form of remediation because, and if you notice they use the word remediation, that's fundamentally what affirmative action is. You know, it's expanded to cover many kinds of difference and sent Spocky to be thought of as a policy in service to a general social commitment to diversity per se. As a side note, it drives me nuts to hear people say things like, what about diversity of ideology? As though somehow having different ideals and making space for those is anything close to the same moral demand as a commitment to racial diversity. Right. Like things you're born with versus things you can choose to change, like your, you know, ideology. Yeah. Like as I was writing this, you know, my eyes fully rolled back in my head. It's just like, oh, please, like not here for that. So going back to the very start, as Louis Menard reminds us, the reason that we have affirmative action now is that we once had slavery and Jim Crow and the GI Bill and redlining and racial covenants. And then we once had all white police forces and all white union locals and all white college campuses and all white law firms. You know, to paraphrase George Shultz, who was Nixon's Secretary of Labor, for hundreds of years, the United States had a racial quota, and that racial quota was zero. Affirmative action is an attempt to redress an injustice done to Black people and other people of color. The 14th Amendment protects white people, too. But that was not why it needed to be written. Well, no. I mean, I appreciate the legal education there, but I think... What needs to be said is that it needs like policies like this needs to be written and needs to continue to be a policy that remains enforced because we know that human beings have an inborn preference for their in-groups, right? It's been shown in so many studies like the red shirt, blue shirt, kindergarten experiment. Human beings also make snap judgments based on what we're exposed to and what we make assumptions around, right? Including the studies that have shown that people, there's one study that I'd love talking about, and you've heard this, Misasha, but like People made assessments about a young child's intellectual capability based on whether they saw her in a middle class or a lower class setting, right? Like we judge, we do need some of that for survival, but we're doing that based on unexamined assumptions we make about people's correlation. And right now in our society, we talked about it before, we have very deeply segregated communities, whether that's totally because it follows the influence of immigration patterns or by exposure to schools, which we just talked to you about colleges being so drastically skewed by one racial composition or another, you know, so much so that, that in our book, we cited a study showing how dramatically people chose their social groups largely based on similarities. Like it just turns out that way. Sure. But if you look around, we are very much in our own circles. And I'm not saying this to blame people, but if we all look at our own circles, it's likely to be true. And I think if you happen to be in the small percentage of people who has a very mixed interracial, intergenerational, socioeconomically mixed, religiously diverse group, that's amazing. Please keep it up and like also realize you're in the minority in our country. But what I'm not saying is that there's nothing that can be done about it. What we're saying is that's why we need to have policies in place to enforce doing what's right if we support the idea of diversity making us stronger. I totally agree. And I think we've had at least one example of what happens when that backfires, right? Like the court's decision in Shelby versus Holder, which we've talked about on another episode, vacating a central provision of the Voting Rights Act has totally led to backpedaling in voting rights in this country. That's why we are still discussing it today. Because it turns out when you reform, remove enforcement mechanisms and remedial oversight, things tend to reverse to how they were before. The whole history of affirmative action shows us that when programs are shut down, minority representation drops. So diversity, to your point, Sarah, however we define it, is politically constructed and politically maintained. It doesn't just happen. It is a choice that we make as a society. I mean, it's possible maybe to understand opposition to affirmative action if you're a white conservative like Ronald Reagan, who thinks that civil rights laws are a federal overreach and affirmative action is enshrining the un-American notion of group rights, right? Or maybe it's possible to understand the opposition of Black conservatives like Clarence Thomas, who see affirmative action as patronizing to African-Americans. But this is where we need you to listen. It's hard to understand the opposition, often diehard, of many white liberals. And that has persisted since the 1970s. And that group includes white women. So Louis Menard leaves us with these questions. Did these people and he's talking to those white liberals that you just talked about, Sarah, and really imagine that passing a law against discrimination would reset race relations overnight. 
Do they really think that white Americans, wherever they work or go to college, do not carry a lifelong advantage because of the color of their skin? Do they really believe that there should be no sacrifice to make or price to pay for the systematic damage done to the lives of millions of American citizens and the men and women who are their ancestors? And as I'm reading that list, I think we should add one more. Do white women understand how much affirmative action benefits them when they're arguing so vocally against it? If you want to look at this in real time, consider, as we are recording this, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who is literally going through her confirmation hearings right now, and the backlash that she's been receiving when we've literally never had a Black woman on the Supreme Court, oh, I don't know, since the start of the court. We have had, however, over 100 white male justices none of whom have the qualifications she does, and none of whom will be ever grilled as hard as she will be. Follow her confirmation, follow the Harvard case, but please don't look away from affirmative action issues even if you feel like they may never impact you. Because diversity benefits us all, especially if you're considering that we didn't all start from the same place. Affirmative action in the end means impact, not just for us, but for generations to come. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar.